0: thank you worship band for leading us this morning. Morning, I am Justin Kinsley as Seth already mentioned, I am the student pastor. And as I was preparing for today, I went into my closet to see what I would wear and I had a stack of t-shirts what youth pastors wear and I decided I needed to go shopping. So, wearing my new digs this morning, but it is it is really good to be with you guys and uh it's so exciting to Dig into God's Word and to uh, worship with you and just to be uh, together. It it really is a blessing to be up here. Uh, So with the arrival of a new year, often come these grand illusions of the future, of what our lives could look like for the better. And so we make these things called New Year's resolutions, or we make goals that we'd like to accomplish in the new year. Some of these common resolutions are to eat better, that's always mine. To exercise mo- more, that's always mine. To read more, again, always mine. Or to learn a new skill. Overall, after Christmas ends, we begin to focus on the future. What's next? What lies ahead of us in the new year? How our lives will be so much better? And what we need to change to make our lives look like that? In the Bible, there are certain themes that pop up time and time again. Almost as if God is using this yellow highlighter to tell us something is very important. And one of those themes that I want to focus on this morning is the theme of remembrance, this emphasis that God places throughout His Word time and time again on the importance for us to remember, to think back. So before I came to Faith Bible Church, I was a student at Dallas Theological (laughs) Seminary. Uh, It's kind of a prerequisite here, Um, and so I, I was there. As a student, didn't have Dr. Hitchcock, um, had heard of him, and so I did not take his class. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just playing wherever he is. He's probably watching online. Um, but I was there at DTS, and uh, if you are a student at DTS and you're married, often you are not the only one learning. Your wife is, is learning alongside of you as she uh, listens to you and as she uh, sees what you're studying, as you converse about your days, that kind of thing. Uh, But if you ask my wife, there is one thing that she will always remember from our time at DTS. So one semester I was in a Hebrew class, and to help me remember my vocabulary words, I would use these mnemonic devices. And so after a long study session, I decided to take a nap, because as most people, Hebrew makes us fall asleep. And so I was uh, sleeping in uh, our bedroom, and Uh, Rachel came to wake me up because I'd been sleeping for a while. And she gently nudged me as she does and uh, woke me up. And out of a deep sleep, I began to yell the Hebrew word, zakar, zakar, I've got to remember to wash zakar. (laughs) And so from now on, my wife has always remembered the word zakar, which means to remember. if we look at Scripture as a whole... A good example of the Bible's emphasis on remembrance is the book of Deuteronomy itself. The book of Deuteronomy played a very, very vital role in the life of Israel as it revolved around remembering the Mosaic law in an effort to spur the Israelites to faithfulness, to live faithfully in the new promised land. So traditionally, the book of Deuteronomy is set as the Israelites were marching towards This promised land. They had just finished their 40 years of wilderness wandering and they were being prepared by Moses to enter this land. And so the book of Deuteronomy serves as a retelling of the Mosaic law for the purpose of when they enter into that promised land, they will be empowered to faithfully serve God. So Deuteronomy is a book of remembrance, a remembering all that God has said and done so that when they go into this land that was promised to Abraham, they might become the people that God has set them apart to be. But again, this theme of remembrance isn't simply isolated in Deuteronomy. It finds itself time and time again throughout the rest of the Old Testament Testament narrative. In fact, the Hebrew word for remember, which is, again, zakar, is used 220 times throughout the Old Testament. And while at the surface, this, this word remember seems simple enough, the actual definition of it in the Hebrew goes far past simply retelling a, an event or a theme in your mind. It goes far past recalling these past events, but it implores us to take that knowledge Of how God worked in our past and use it for the fuel for our present day faithfulness. You see, remembrance is our fuel for present day faithfulness. And so, to see this in a better light, I want us to turn to the book of Psalms Psalm 77 to be exact. And as we read this psalm together, we're going to break it into two pieces. The first piece, verse 1 through 9, begins by describing the situation that our psalmist finds himself in, the the context by which he is surrounded. And then verse 10 through 20 describes the psalmist's solution or resolution to his present day circumstances. So let's begin together by reading verse 1 through 9 in Psalm 77. God's Word tells us in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at the end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he he in his anger shut up his compassion? I want to stop right here before we move on to the rest of this psalm and and unpack it just a little bit. So I've titled this section of Psalm 77, Frailty and Forgetfulness, because just as we read, the psalmist is allowing his current situation to determine how and what he thinks about God. What his experience is telling him is now dictating his understanding of who God is He has become so internally fixated on the world around him, so much so that no longer can he see the bigger picture of God working. But again, what is that bigger picture in Psalm 77? The context for Psalm 77 is is very imperative that we understand it before we, we know what his distress truly is. So Psalm 77 is located... In the third book of the Psalms, which starts in verse or in chapter 73 and runs all the way to chapter 89. And most scholars agree that this setting for these Psalms generally revolves around the upcoming Babylonian exile. So, Psalm 77 most likely sits after the northern nation of Israel has been exiled by Assyria in 722 BC, and right before the nation of Babylon comes to begin its conquest of the southern nation of Judah. So Asaph is our author here, as as is seen in the superscription. And he's writing in the context of this tragedy. Israel has been exiled. They have been taken away. And now he knows that the Babylonians are coming to the same thing to the southern nation of Judah. So we have it easy here in America. We haven't had uh, major battles in quite some time here on our own turf, but I, for just a second, I want, I want us to feel the anxiety and the worry of Asaph. Feel the anxiety of a coming nation that is looking to destroy everything that you hold dear, your place of worship, your home, your family, everything you know about your life is about to be dismantled. The anguish and the worry that this author feels almost seems appropriate, knowing that the Babylonians are on his doorstep. But his worry seems to have taken a wrong turn. His anxiety is the deciding factor in how he views God and how he acts towards Him. And what's really interesting about this psalm Is that it is dominated by the first personal pronoun, I and my. Verse 1 through 9, it's littered throughout this first personal pronoun. We hear the psalmist say things like, I cry aloud, my soul refuses to be comforted, I moan, my spirit faints. And again, that's only the first three verses. As the darkness of the night seems to be approaching our psalmist, all he can think about is himself. And isn't that the truth for us today? When our world seems to be turned upside down and everything we once knew has changed, our minds naturally run to ourselves first. We begin a process of self-pity, where we look to ourselves, where the world seems to revolve around our needs and our sorrow. As the famous Oklahoman Toby Keith sings, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my. Read with me again, Psalms 1 through 3, in chapter 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Our psalmist is marked by restlessness in his day of trouble. These verses, again, you can feel the discomfort of our psalmist. He is continually lifting up his hands to the Lord, yet no comfort seems to be coming his way. The imagery is all too familiar as it depicts the struggle to feel God, to feel his comfort and his love and his peace during the moments of life that bring extreme sadness and depression. And in verse 2, the Hebrew word stretched out can also mean to drip. And what this psalmist is saying, he is is so uh, uh, worried and anxious that he is literally sweating at night, raising his hands to the Lord for help. Again, this this picture is further broadened when he says in verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. The psalmist's misery is so much so that now, not only does it seem like God has fled from him, but so has his sleep. One author puts it this way. Distress weighs so heavily upon the writer that he cannot find utterance. His words choke him when he tries to speak. Our psalmist is restless in his distress. But to make matters worse, the psalmist, his restlessness, turns into questioning the character and actions of God. Asaph begins to question whether God is truly loving, whether God is, is truly gracious, if his compassion has been shut up. If we're honest with ourselves, such questions has probably entered our own minds at times as we've walked through this darkness of despair. We expect God to act in accordance to what we think is best for us. And when he doesn't, our first response is to question his faithfulness. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, summarizes our questioning in a good way when he says this. Are the pipes of goodness choked up so that love can no more flow through them? Of anyone who might know what this psalmist is experiencing Charles Spurgeon is that guy. Often, uh, it's tempting to idealize these great men of church history because we see the great things that they have done. But they're not without their own demons. And and Charles Spurgeon had some great ones. Throughout his life, he battled battled with gout, neuralgia, debilitating headaches, and, and severe depression. And one time, while he was speaking on Psalm 77, Spurgeon made these comments, and see if you can resonate with these. Some of us know what it is to both physically and spiritually be compelled to use these words. No respite has been afforded to us by the silence of night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment. Our spirit is in anguish. Have you been there? These words are a great picture of the times of darkness that we all experience. Our souls and our bodies toss and turn in continual anguish. And it seems like God cannot be found. But luckily for us, this is not where the psalmist concludes. Psalm 77 concludes with a different resolution. A resolution, as Warren Weir'sby says, is to never doubt in the darkness what God has told us in the light. To never doubt in the darkness what God has told us in the light. The solution for Asaph is to remember. So turn with me back to Psalm 77 and let's read the rest of this passage together. Verse 10 says this, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your works of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm you redeem the children of Jacob, and Joseph. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see, what Asaph is doing in this passage is extremely simple at its core. Very easy. But often, it's the very last thing we do when we're confronted by a trial. You see, in his moment of despair, when everything was turning upside, when the darkness had surrounded Asaph, he chose to remember. Asaph chose to turn his mind from the discomfort of his situation and instead remember the works of the Lord. You can see this turn in his thinking in verse 10. After nine whole verses of complaining and questioning God, the author purposefully diverts his eyes away from himself and his current situation, and he chooses to behold the great works of God. He tells us, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now, I'm reading out the ESV but some of you probably have different passages or, or different translations that say something a little bit different. And, and this passage is really difficult in the Hebrew to translate correctly. Uh, and so there's many different ideas of how this should be played out. And whether your verse or you're reading the ESV like mine or, or some other translation, what we see in either verse 10 or 11 is a, fo- a shift in focus of our psalmist. From a purely individualistic point of view to a Godward point of view, Asaph makes a decision to remember. And this simple switch in his focus makes all of the difference. Instead of focusing on the Babylonians who are coming to invade his country and the threat that they pose to the way of life for the nation of Judah, Asaph makes a clear decision to remember. He chooses to bring to mind all the ways that God has worked on his behalf. All the ways that he has worked favorably in his past towards the people of Israel, not relenting to act favorably toward them. And you see, our God is an immutable God. He's never changing. And he will not relent in pursuit of his beloved. Our temptation is to look to the future. To look to how we think God should act on our behalf, what he should do for us in the coming year. In fact, I recently was re-watching Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and at one point the antagonist, Kylo Ren, tells the protagonist, Rey, something that I think we've all probably thought in our minds before. He says this, Let the past die, kill it. And this is our temptation. This is the temptation of Asaph amidst the coming calamity of the Babylonian Empire to forget the past and focus purely on his current situation. But ultimately, Asaph chooses to remember. Look at the verbs that he uses in verse 11 and 12 to describe his solution to this dark situation. He tells us he will remember the deeds of the Lord, remember the wonders of old, ponder his work and meditate on his deeds these all require action. Pondering, meditating, and even remembering the works of the Lord go much further than simply recalling these past events. But they include for us a call. A call for a person to respond to those great acts in faithfulness. To live presently with faithfulness because of what God has done in our past. In other words, the the act of remembering the works and deeds of the Lord are meant to lead us to present-day faithfulness. Again, Charles Spurgeon has some good words of advice for us when he examines this passage. He says this, When faith has its seven years of famine, memory, like Joseph in Egypt, opens her granaries. (laughs) Memory, for the believer, is like nourishing food that comes amidst a personal famine. When all seems lost, remembering who God is and what God has done becomes food for our souls. This food of remembrance is is one of the main reasons why the Israelites participated in so many festivals and rituals in their religious system. So think with me back to the Passover. Passover when God instructed the Israelites through his prophet Moses to take this unblemished lamb to paint its blood along their doorpost as a sign that their blood had been atoned through the sacrifice of that lamb. And after that one great act of of life that God's people in Egypt experienced, God instituted an annual day of remembrance. Every year the Israelites would think back to God, how, how God remembered them from that death that was inevitable in Egypt. But this festival was not simply done to recall those events or to merely start some sort of tradition. This founding of the Passover festival was instituted so that by remembering who God is and what God has done on behalf of Israel, the Israelites might be empowered to live faithfully in their present circumstances. The event was not the priority, but it was the act of remembrance which would lead to faithfulness was the basis for these festivals and celebrations in Israel. And as the author of Psalm 77 continues in his remembrance of the, how the Lord has acted on his behalf, verse 13 signals a shift, another shift in the focus of Of the subject of this psalm again if you remember verse one through nine was dominated with the first personal pronoun me my and i but now the psalmist begins using the second personal pronoun you the focus has shifted away from himself and is now firmly planted on the lord even though his he is in the midst of this dark dark time his focus has shifted away from his surroundings, and now he's focusing on the true light. So every year I take the college or the high school students to a, a camp in Colorado called Ravencrest. This camp has a ton of fun. We do it every year. This is going to be our 20th year going as a church, uh, so it's been kind of a tradition that we've set here. And as you can imagine, we do a lot of fun things there. And one of the things that I really enjoy is mountain biking. And mountain biking there in Colorado is a lot different than mountain biking here in Oklahoma. So, needless to say, the first time we go out on these mountain bikes, the staff at Ravencrest make sure to train us as best they can in that, uh, those few hours to stay safe on the trail. And one of those things that they teach us is to always place our eyes in the direction we want to go. There's a temptation when mountain biking in Colorado because there's all sorts of rocks and roots and cracks that you're going to have to get over to get to the end of the trail. The temptation is to concentrate so heavily on those obstacles because you want to get over them, but ultimately you end up stumbling over them in the long run. So there's always this this pressure to to look ahead, to to see where you want to go, And this is what our psalmist is doing. Through the act of remembrance, the author is taking his eyes off of himself, off of the obstacles that are in his way, and now he's choosing to look beyond himself to the Lord who is waiting on the other side. Again, it's no longer about how he can get over these obstacles in his life, But now he is looking to the one who has already blazed the trail for him in the first place. Verse 13 through 15 go on to declare the wonderful works and the nature of God. Where only five verses prior, the psalmist was questioning the reliability of God. Now he sings his praises. He proclaims that there is no other God like our God. Verse 13 through 15 again says this, Your way, O God, is holy. But God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among your people. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Verse 13 begins describing God's holiness, his set-apartness. He is greater than any other God because he is the only God. His ways are holy because he himself is holy. And remembering these attributes of God's character enable our psalmist to think outside of himself and to the one who is omnipotent and omniscient in all matters. So no matter if this Babylonian horde is coming, is marching on their way to ransack the nation of Judah, our psalmist can stand confident in the fact that God's ways are holy. That God is the all-righteous one. That God works on behalf of his people. But the works of the hand of God aren't simply seen by Israel. Verse 14 tells us that the mighty deeds of God are seen throughout the world. God has made, not made himself silent to the outside world. But it continues to reveal himself through his actions for the world. Again, not only is he a holy God and a God who works these mighty deeds, but our God is a God who works on behalf of his people for their redemption. So as the psalmist continually uh, and consciously remembers how the Lord has worked in his past, his mind retreats back to his forefathers, to the people of Israel long ago, in the manner by which God redeemed them out of death. And out of slavery in Egypt. And what's really interesting in this passage is at the end of verse 15, there are two forefathers that are coupled together Jacob and Joseph. And Psalm 77 is the only place in all of Scripture where both of these men are signaled together as forefathers of Egypt or forefathers of Israel. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, why is the author using Jacob and Joseph in this manner? As heirs to the promise, these two men looked forward to a day when God would fulfill what he had spoken to their uh, grandfather, great-grandfather Abraham, that there would be a promised land filled with the people of God. The only problem for Jacob and Joseph... Is that they both died in Egypt before this promise could be fulfilled. However, God was still faithful to his promised people, to Jacob and Joseph, by redeeming their bones. If you read in uh, Genesis, their bones are being carried over to the promised land to be buried there. And what the psalmist is doing at the end of chap- or verse 15 is he is proclaiming the wonders of serving a God who can redeem his people out of death. Out of all situations, our God is a God who can redeem and will redeem his people. The psalmist's remembrance of the redemption of God hits its height in verse 16 through 20 as he begins to detail all of the great work of God in the redemption of the Israelites through the Red Sea. His decision to remember has now led to a mental act of remembrance. And if you remember the story with me, the Israelites were approaching the Red Sea after they were given permission by Pharaoh to leave Egypt, when all of a sudden the Pharaoh decided to change his mind. And he sent uh, chariots and and all of his, his men to go and wrangle these Israelites back into bondage, back into Egypt. And with no other options available to the Israelites, God performed a miracle and he opened up the waters of the Red Sea. He led the people on dry ground to the other side. Once again, redeeming the people of Israel from a darkness that sought to consume them. Asaph refuses to allow this dark moment in his life to cloud his understanding of the character and the redeeming power of God. Instead of being bogged down by his current situation, as Warren Wiersbe says, Asaph chooses to look up at the character of God and look back at the redemption of God. He looks up at God's character and back at how God has redeemed him. But again, his remembrance of God is not simply this mental act. It serves a greater purpose. It serves a purpose to enable Asaph to live faithfully in his present. No matter what is going on in the the world around him, Asaph is empowered to stay faithful to God. These Babylonians are marching ever closer. Their footsteps can be heard in the distance. Judah is going to be exiled. But Asaph can remain faithful. Because he knows he serves a God who is holy and is righteous. A God who works towards the redemption of his people. And he knows that because of who God has shown himself to be in his past. So we today are empowered to live faithfully because of what we've seen God do in our past. Verse 20 wraps this scripture up by saying, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, you see, Asap knows he can faithfully, he can walk faithfully in the present because he is not walking alone. He is walking in the presence of the good shepherd. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that the good shepherd knows his sheep and he will lay his life down for them. And where this psalm comes to its best application for us today is in remembrance. As we stand here together, Faith Bible Church as a congregation. We stand in the midst of a turbulent time, a time where God is continually being blasphemed, God is being rejected and denied. And in that time, we are called to remember. Remember who God is. Remember how God has worked on our behalf in our past. In fact, much of the Christian life revolves around that act of remembering what the Lord has done and then responding accordingly the Lord's Supper. Right? We do that at the first of the month here at Faith Bible Church, where the body of believers gets to gather around the table and remember the sacrifice that God has made. But that meal that we eat is not simply done out of tradition or as a religious ritual. It's meant to be a meal of remembrance, where after we take the cup and the bread, the church together leaves empowered and strengthened to live faithfully for God in their present lives. So Psalm 77 gives us an important reminder. Our remembrance of the works of God is the fuel for our present day faithfulness. A good example of how remembrance fuels our presence is the famous battle for the Alamo uh, during the War for Independence of Texas. This is something you learn in elementary school when you grow up in Texas. Uh, And and General Santa Anna brought these full forces of the Mexican army and rained fire upon the ill-equipped and undermanned Texas army as they tried to hold out at the Alamo. And from the looks of it, they would not hold off long. But the undermanned Texan army determined held the Mexican forces off for 13 days until they were defeated. The news of this grit and determination of these Texan soldiers traveled far and wide and ultimately became the fuel for the rest of the uh, the war. At the deciding battle of San Jacinto, the battle cry, Remember the Alamo, became the fuel for defeating the Mexican forces in a mere 18 minutes. Independence for Texas was won on the back of Remembrance in a similar vein, my call to us today as a church, as we approach this new year, 2020, is to, fix, is to not fixate our eyes on the future. Instead, let us be a church who looks up and looks back. Allow our remembrance of God to spur us to present-day faithfulness. God has worked wonders in all of our lives. And we would all do well to take time this year and remember how he has been faithful to us and how he has blessed us and to use that remembrance as the fuel that propels us to live faithfully for him in the new year. And ultimately, let us remember that we serve a God who remembers us. We are a people that have been remembered by our Saviour even though we're still living in a world covered by sin, a world that seems to grow darker by the day, a world where evil has become the cultural norm, even still we serve a God who has remembered us and has worked on our behalf by sending His Son to die on a cross so that whoever believes in Him might have everlasting life. He took a death that he did not deserve to die, but He willingly took it in our place so that we could be redeemed from sin and be made alive anew in Him. And all He asks is for us to trust in Him, that we lay down our lives at the foot of the cross and follow Him. So if you're here today and you, if you have not done that, if you have yet to submit yourself to the one who has worked on your behalf, I encourage you to do so today. If you'd like to talk to somebody after this Uh, this uh, sermon, we'll have some elders up front who would love to talk to you. My encouragement to you as we enter 2020 is to look up and to look back. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word together. We submit ourselves to it. We submit ourselves to you. I pray that you would guide and direct us as we enter this new year. I pray that as we go about our days with anticipation of what the future holds, that we would not fail to remember what you have done, to remember the good works that you have done on our behalf, to remember the death that you died on the cross. And I pray that that remembrance would be the fuel that helps us to live faithfully today. I pray that you would be with us as we leave. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.